you could argue fraudsters in a way have, have an easier job in that they don't need to find their way into the most secure institution that has your data. They just need to find their way into the least secure or the one with the least guardrails. That's part of what I think is problematic about the ecosystem today, which is that we've given our data to a lot of different places. To me, I, I think that privacy doesn't necessarily mean mass deleting our data. I think it means better controls over who has access to the data, for what purposes and when. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Eli Walks, Footprint co-founder and CEO. What's up, man? Welcome to Bridging the Gap. Thanks for taking time to join us. How are you? I'm doing well, Matt. Thanks for having me. Happy, uh, happy Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. Well, New York, so it's a little cold up there. It's probably colder than it is down here, but... You you have always live in New York. You grew up in New York, or is it kind of just the the destination professionally you've been at? I grew up in Philadelphia. Then I went to school out in California. Was there, and then have been in New York since pretty much since the pandemic. All right, very good. Well, with that, I think that that's a really great lead in to kind of the question I always like to ask. I mean, this is going to be a conversation. I think it's super topical, and I I, I we were talking about before we start recording. I, I don't know. If it's ever going to be untopical, maybe bits people get worn out of it, but it's all about cybersecurity, PII, KYC, just protecting data. And I'm super intrigued about, you know, where the future is in this space. How do we do it well? How do we make it easy? Uh, and y'all talk about solving a lot of that at Footprint. So I'm stoked to get into that conversation. But before we do, and you kind of alluded to a little bit, you know, growing up in Philly, I'm curious, you know, what did the... What did the 13-year-old Eli Walks want to be when he grew up? Yeah, I, I didn't want to be a data security professional uh, or, or kind of work, work in identity. Like When I was younger, I was really interested in history. I read a ton of history books. I w- was really fascinated about what events ha- had led us to the present day. When I was in high school, so maybe 14 or 15-year-old Eli, I, I read this book called Abundance. It was written by the founder of a company called XPRIZE. They do these big moonshot competitions. And Abundance is really about some breakthrough technologies. And at the time, it was writing about how technology could define the history of tomorrow. It really inspired me. It got me thinking about how could that history be rewritten in better ways. And that's what led me down a path of starting a company in high school under the XPRIZE umbrella to do similar things of incentivized competitions for high school students. But yes, growing up, I would not have expected I'd be doing exactly what I am today, but I was definitely interested in how do you leverage technology to to make an impact on a global scale? Yeah, I love that. Well, I mean, so, and I always like to start with that question because it's so interesting how people get to where they are. I think that so many people have this perception that entrepreneurs are just born entrepreneurs or born into the industry that they were, and, and that's just not always the case. So walk us through the journey that got you from that 13-year-old self to now being the co-founder and CEO of Footprint? Yeah, it's well said. I mean, I think it's very easy to write a clean narrative of how every dot connected and how you were always on a path to do this. Often when I give people advice on fundraising, I say that they should give a story that leads in them inevitably starting that exact company that exact moment of time. And that's what I think makes a good company pitch. I think the honest truth below that is that's not really how life works. I think I've been lucky to follow things I was passionate about and follow those rabbit holes. And it, and it led me to be more specific. Uh, I was in high school. I started this company called High School Heroes X. It was under the X Prize umbrella. It, it was 
an interesting opportunity to be able to start something at a smaller scale, recruit people to be a part of it, and see what impact could look like if you're able to get a bunch of smart minds together. I think I learned from a young age that I could do far more by getting people who are much smarter than me to, to, to work with me together. I followed through doing Heroes X, I was interested in the broad premise of technology, I suppose. That's at least the story I gave of why I applied and was, was lucky to go to Stanford. I think being honest, I grew up on the East Coast and I just wanted to do something different. Uh, a lot of kids I went to high school, they would go to school in the Northeast. California, it seemed different. I didn't grow up with a computer. I mean, I grew up with a computer, but I didn't grow up coding. I didn't grow up being someone who, who idolized maybe necessarily Silicon Valley founders. It, it's not that my life stream was always to go there. It just seemed like an incredible opportunity. When I got there, I became more and more interested in, at first, big data. I remember taking economics class my freshman year with this brilliant economist named Raj Chetty. He spoke about the stuff that I studied in high school that I found really interesting, which was things like, can we use Google searches to predict flus, which is something that I would end up building a small thing around. Or can you do interventions based on different zip codes or based off different third grade reading scores to help people achieve or more likely go to college? I was really fascinated by this idea of a lot of data means a lot of possible good in really simplistic terms. My sophomore year, I started seeing a change there. I started seeing a narrative shift of even, I think, at Stanford, going from technology is an elixir and it's going to make the world unequivocally better to some of these startups may have issues. We saw from a legal perspective, GDPR get introduced, which was Europe's data legislation back in 2016. And then the U.S. would pass CCPA, California Consumer Privacy Act, in 2018, which would go into law in 2019. And these laws started to challenge that notion because these laws were essentially ways to limit and restrict the movement of data. That got me very interested in that. It, it challenged my core notion of what progress looked like. Yet they had a lot of, at least by bars and congressional support, and I think a lot of public support, and that this was in the wake of the 2016 election. People are scared of the abstract notion of Facebook touches my data or Facebook sells my data. And I was very interested in college of building something to help people be put in control of their data. Let me pause there. I know that was a lot, but there's a part two of this story I'm having to get into what led from an interest of putting people in control of their data to building a company around identity verification and data security. I'm curious in that next stage of the story, right? Because it kind of goes from this, this data aspect of can you utilize data to predict things into the future and the massive amounts of data. And it kind of seems that there was this like transformation where we had all this data, we had access to this data that we could do some really cool things with that you were exploring out in, in the Valley and, and at Stanford. And, and then it transitioned and now we have all this data and now everybody's like, well, we have all this data and a lot of it's my data. And now people are going to get access to my data that I don't want to have access to my data, which then transfers over to this idea of how do we create ability for us to manage that data, which then becomes the challenge, I think, because we don't even know where all of our data is. And so I'm curious on that kind of that next stage of the journey that it went to where we were so happy to have access to it. And then we didn't realize the the negative consequences of it. And now we're trying to solve for the negative consequences. But it seems like it's like this exponential curve, and it becomes harder and harder to, to manage all that. So 
Tell us a little bit more about that next stage. Yeah, I, I think we have a tendency maybe, and I'll rope myself in as a we, even though I maybe don't deserve to in Silicon Valley, to take for granted the things that maybe technologists are more comfortable with and assume that the broad public will be comfortable with those tools as well. I think Facebook is a very interesting example with not even the election, but really targeted advertising in that at its core, targeted advertising was not necessarily selling people's data, even if that's a perception. It's pretty complex. It's selling access to groups of people who likely have interests based on what they've clicked on or follow or interact with. But I think from the beginning, because there is not a diligence from the side of Silicon Valley to win an information war per se, or even try to explain why what they were doing, the motivations behind that, not taking for granted public trust, I think that it was lost fairly quickly. And when that gets lost, it becomes a much higher hill to climb to be able to get people to trust you again to be able to solve those things that could be relevant in the future. And I saw that. And to me, that became a very interesting mission, which was how do we rebuild the public trust? What are things we can do to help people along the way? Maybe not doing that massive futuristic thing in 10 years, but how do you begin to rebuild that trust today to get people once again comfortable with trusting digital agents and, and online programs with their data? It's an interesting question that I want to explore. And I think, you know, is the advancements of technology have been so, so fast, so quick from that standpoint. And, and, and the demands for more is there, right? I don't know how many people would rather use cash as opposed to credit card or how many people would rather go back to encyclopedias as opposed to Google or go back to writing letters as opposed to emails, right? You get the point that I'm going at. And we all want to make life easier. We want more connection. We want more access. We want ease. And with that comes more data that's needed. And I'm wondering, how do we build trust? Because it feels like there is such a lack of trust in the digital ecosystem because of cybersecurity or cyber attacks and everything of this nature. And, and our data is now so many places because we've wanted it to be so many places because we wanted access, but now we don't want that. And you can't really have your cake and eat it too. And so what is the answer, I guess? Like what is the uh, the ability other than, yeah, I don't even know. I mean, where where do we go? Other Maybe it's footprint. Maybe that is the answer. But I'm, I'm curious of like, how do we get our cake and eat it too in this digital world and also to be secure when you have the cyber terrorist, if you want to call them that, or cyber attackers that are they're working faster every day to be better at, at finding new ways to exploit digital digital data? It's a great question. And I'm not surprised that there is a lack of public trust because of all of the bad things that have happened. There have been numerous very public breaches of very large institutions and millions of copies of personal data along with it. If you want to talk about identity theft, there's close to $20 billion of identity theft a year online. And this, once again, is really just shattering public trust, understandably so once again, because how are you supposed to trust something that's letting someone that you know isn't you on there? I had someone tell me that fraudsters work just as hard as industry professionals at getting in and preventing getting in from systems, say to send of red tape. And I think it's pretty well said, which is that you could argue fraudsters in a way have, have an easier job in that they don't need to find their way into the most secure institution that has your data. They just need to find their way into the least secure or the one with the least guardrails. 
that's part of what I think is problematic about the ecosystem today, which is that we've given our data to a lot of different places. It can be difficult or confusing to get it back, even if we now legally have that right to request our data, request the right of deletion. It's difficult to exercise that when you may not even remember the places you've given your data. And then you have to trust various places. To me, I, I think that privacy doesn't necessarily mean mass deleting our data. I think it means better controls over who has access to the data, for what purposes and when. Because I think also when you start to build back that trust, you start to see that not everybody needs all of your data at every time to make decisions. Someone may not need your birthday. They may just need to know if you're over 18 or if you're over 21. So I think there's also an impetus on companies to be smarter of what they're collecting and what they're storing for extended periods of time. The way we approach this at Footprint is we work with a lot of companies who onboard users, which makes sense. Most companies onboard users, but more specifically, onboard users for applications where they need to collect sensitive data. So you may have started off by wanting to build an investment platform. You may have started off by wanting to build a car rental marketplace. And next thing you know, you have a social security number, which probably wasn't what you had envisioned your first day thinking about building that company. But as a byproduct of creating it, you're now collecting this sense of information. To us, we think about, well, how can we help them accomplish that task of own user while not having to worry about storing that? And that's just where I think a lot of this starts. That I don't think there are as many nefarious actors from a company side, but these breaches happen often, I think, because companies that are not cybersecurity companies, nor would I expect them to be cybersecurity companies, ended up in a position where they've all this sensitive information. Mm. So I'm going to ask this naive question, and, and, and I apologize about being, maybe naive is not the right word, maybe it's just not understanding or not empathetic in, in it, but... From your perspective, and I know you're, you're, what your company is doing, I think, is is great to protect data. And I want to dive into the frictionless aspect because there's two points that I want to make here. One is that the more complexity that we now we give control over to the end user to control who has what data, now that becomes a management tactic, like having to budget and everything of that nature. And I've just I know that that becomes a more of a challenge as well. But the point I want to ask first is. Is the amount of data breaches or, or impact on people, negative impact on people, is it similar to kind of like, you know, people feel that they only hear about the plane crashes. They don't hear about every day that a plane takes off and lands successfully and the percentages there and that we only hear about the data breaches, but not every single day how successful companies are at battling data breaches and that they're successful at protecting data. Is it a similar notion in that way? Or am I like completely like just missing it in the world? And it just is that it is everybody's getting such impacted all the time from that standpoint. I think it's somewhere in the middle. I don't think there is every day our data is getting leaked from three places. But I also don't think it's like airplanes where statistically they're the, the most risky part of getting on an airplane is driving to the airport. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it is, I think, more concern. And that is a true stat, even maybe not including Boeing 737, but that, that's, a, that's a true stat. Um, for identity information, the unfortunate thing is there are repercussions when there's a breach. So even if my data is in 100 places and 99 do a wonderful job, so statistically it's pretty safe, once my data is leaked once, it, it's out there. To me, the way companies have thought about combating this has been naive, actually, in that I say companies look for fraudulent actors. They look for a needle in a haystack. 
to me, the problem here is there's an infinite amount because once your data is leaked once, there's an infinite amount of people who can try to impersonate you. Conversely, there's a finite amount of real people. There's a finite amount of you, Matt's, in the world. The way we think about things that Footprint is creating a closed-up ecosystem where there can only be one person with that identity. And the moment a second person tries to arrive at the scene, we know that's a duplicate identity and only one of you can have that. So I think it's a mix. I think there is a real amount of breaches and because there's a real amount, it becomes a problem. Are most places safe? Sure. But I think you deserve better than that to trust the world and the digital world with your data. Yeah. And I, I actually love that answer. I, I can appreciate that answer. I think you navigated my naivety really well as opposed to just saying, Matt, you're a dummy. And so I, I can appreciate that. But I, I do agree with you on that. The, let's go to that next question before I get into another naive, silly question. This is all the reason I love this podcast is because I love having conversations with people that are super smart and a lot smarter than me. So I can ask these dumb questions and 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 learn about something new. But is the answer of controlling our data, is that the answer? Because let's talk on that side of it. Because if I have to now go manage who all has my data and what data they have, that seems like that's a huge burden on, it's basically, it kind of in my mind makes me think about kind of the defined benefit versus defined contribution situation that happened, right? Defined benefit plans were so the the norm, but it put a lot of burden on the companies. So they said, you know, we're just going to go and give the whole control over to the employees and and they can have all the control and, and it lessens the burden on us. Then now you have, you know, retirement savings are very minimal. People don't save as much as they should. They don't know how to necessarily go about investing it and it becomes harder. It seems like this would be a similar way of where we're putting instead of the burden being on the companies necessarily. And I don't know if that's what you're saying. I'm just how I'm thinking of it. It now goes on to the individuals who is it's their data to then determine how to allocate that data appropriately, which then seems is is that solving the problem or just transitioning the problem to somebody else and now the onus is just on us as as humans which might be the right answer it's well said i don't think we want to create a world where the onus is on people to wake up every day and launch some control panel and see where their data is and who's accessing it i think it should be a digital library where you don't have to do that i think on the flip side there should be i think real guardrails in place that companies are being proper custodians of the data To me, what I think is somewhat interesting is we want to create a world at Footprint where as a result of being better custodians, you are able to interact with users in a lower friction way. I think it goes back in a strange way to some of the earlier conversation around even at Facebook, which is companies don't necessarily need everything they used to ask for to be useful for you. And that's why to me, I think privacy on the internet doesn't need the leash and it doesn't mean mass, mass use, it means control. I think for the users who do really care and do want to go and log on and and see who has their data and how they can delete it, they should have that right. I think for the vast majority of users who who aren't in that bucket, they should have the right at least to, to not have nefarious things going on, for their data to be stored to some proper degree, for their data not to be sold without their knowledge. So that, that's that's the paradigm, at least, that I think should exist. And I love that idea and that mentality of like, if, can we make it frictionless? for us to interact with in a secure way that we know we do it. Maybe it's like you do it, you you protect your data once on who can use it, you make it frictionless, and then you can go do it multiple times, right? And I think that that's where you're you're alluding to. And here's now my next naive, you know, dummy question. 
and, and I'm just going to go like, this is like, hey, Matt, you just read a headline and now you're asking this question. Like, is blockchain the answer here? Or, and if so, is, is that the answer? Does that protect our data if we put it all in the blockchain? Or is that not even how the blockchain is meant to be? I know that there's a lot of financial transactions that are that are moved across the chain, the blockchain now. It seems more secure from a ledger standpoint. I'm using just little keywords that I read in an article, I think, recently on TechCrunch. And so is that an answer or is that is that just part of the answer and not the complete way of, of protecting data? Yes, yeah, so we don't we don't think so, but I'm also definitely not the expert on the matter to, to give the the bull side uh pro list of why. The reasons why we don't think that blockchain is the answer here it goes down to a couple of things. One, for strong underlying root identity on the internet. When we talk about the term KYC, know your customer. It's what banks need to do, credit cards need to do, mortgage lenders need to do. Oftentimes, at the end of a KYC process, you are interacting with a government bureau uh, or, or data agency like Experian, like LexisNexis, for example. And those companies, I don't see issuing credentials on the blockchain anytime soon. So I think that that's logistically, before you even get into the merits, logistically, I think it'll, it would be difficult for the underlying providers of, of identity verification to get on there. To me, the second big problem is I actually think we need centralization. So going back to how we view the world of identity theft and identity protection on the internet, we want to create one centralized ecosystem. Now, to me, the problem why there's so much identity theft is every company's on their own. If you commit fraud on Robinhood, Coinbase does not know that. And Coinbase would not be told by Robinhood. Conversely, if I steal your identity on one of those companies, you don't know. To me, we want to create a world where there is a central repository per se, instead of two people show up with the same identity, we know that. And finally, we don't want to be in a world where you send your identity. Today, if I get fished, if I sign up for something by mistake, the repercussion is that someone may have my identity credentials. Maybe I should reset passwords somewhere else. But in the world we want to create, we at least could reclaim that ownership per se. Uh, we could kind of report the fish. In a blockchain world, we'd be worried about the idea of someone being, uh, you sending your identity credential to the wrong person and then them being able to have a strong cryptographic seal that that is now their credential to create accounts with. Makes sense. And so... As you start talking about centralized, this, by the way, I, I, this conversation is enthralling to me. I, I, I love this type of conversation because I'm, I'm learning something new throughout every piece of it. When you talk about centralized, how I'm envisioning this, right? When you say centralized for all of our personal data is that there should be one central location, one ecosystem, and then that hub is then, and, and everybody's hub is the same and it's, and it's controlled in one manner and then from there you kind of filter out but that manner is like the source of truth in essence everything else has to go back to the source of truth you know when i think about that i think about when we were building a technology company that was using apis to do for bank apis to get bank information to do budgeting and kind of like a mint.com and the challenge was there's no like central ecosystem because there's so many players that had to be a part of it to get that to work. And then I know in Europe, they created some legislation, government came in and created some legislation to help create centralized ways for APIs to do data aggregation 
And, and that streamlined it and allowed fintechs to really boom over there a little bit more because it, you just built a one API as opposed to we had to build a thousands. And oh no, I learned about many different banks. It seems like that is like the biggest challenge in this whole deal or desire to get to a centralized system, unless I'm missing the mark. And, and so like who, who would need to cooperate in that world to create the centralized system as you're alluding to it in your world, in your mind? It's a good point that many other countries in the world have figured this out, as you said. Canada has a pretty good system. Norway has a really good system here with unified bank IDs. It's not a novel mystery. There have been a couple of reasons I think it hasn't happened in the U.S. One is, unlike a lot of other places, we have a very long tail of partner banks, community banks, and then other players in fintech that are real players. So there are other countries that maybe have standardized an ID. And they may be countries where maybe there are five banks that control most of the ecosystem, which is helpful in creating it. With that said, as you, and I think that's also the problem with consortiums often, in that there's this game theory problem of, should I contribute? Will other people contribute? At the same time, one thing we, we discussed with the beginning was, was this idea of friction. One thing I love about the job I get to do is similar to what you were saying about podcasting is that I get to learn from people who are smart, far smarter than, than I am about, you know, where we operate. And our head of risk says this really great thing, which is, you know, when we speak to companies, if you want no fraud, sounds good, we'll block every applicant. And if you want full conversion, that works too. We can let everybody on. And I think it reflects a, a very fair paradigm, but also inherently in that it's important to note that there probably should be different requirements based off the task I want to do. There should probably be a higher bar if I want a credit card, and there should probably be a higher bar than that if I want a loan. We probably are expected to fill out information. The flip side, which we think a lot about is, based off the information I'm providing, getting verified, why are we doing this multiple times? For Footprint, the way we think about solving this is, each time you verify yourself somewhere, we are safely storing that information on behalf of you and the company because the company needs access to that audit trail. And if you go then to a second company, we will use that same credential so you don't have to enter anything. So it's low friction, but we have this highest seal that it's the same person with the information. And if there's any additional information you need for, say, that second site, we're able to dynamically catch that and, and, and collect in real time. So we think as a result, because we're not in the ecosystem, we're either politically or from like a bank perspective that you're able to have the world of creating consortium, we don't need to do it overnight. We can do it over time. So we can give companies tools that are really valuable for them. And along the way, each time we help them onboard someone, we begin to build that consortium on our own. So let me ask something here. And I, I think that your point about why it's not, other countries have solved it. I think that one of the other aspects or one of the other points is, is that it's just where you, know, you think about Norway, you think about Canada. I mean, we're just a much larger country than a, a number of people that would have to centralize it, I think is is maybe another challenge for us, along with the, the banking system. Is, it's got a lot of antiquated systems and, and, and legacy players. I'm going to provide a scenario. You tell me if this is something that Footprint has a desire to solve one day, thinks that they will solve one day, or has already solved one day, and I'd love to explore it. The process that I hate the most is whenever you go get debt from a bank, whether personal debt or business debt, it's a pain in the butt. I just think about mortgages, for instance. A mortgage seems like it's the most antiquated, hardest process to complete. 
and especially if you're an entrepreneur, whatever it may be, a business owner, it's hard because you have a lot of different types of income that you have to prove. And I think it can be hard for individuals because it's sometimes like, I don't understand what else they need to show. And it's also really hard for retirees to be able to show that they can generate that income. Are those the types of problems that you think can be solved? And then if so, what else needs to be done to make them solved more? It's just cooperation from the banking system, I would assume. But uh, I'll pose that question to you. So I'm not sure if we directly would solve something like that. But I think the ecosystem and the future we think about is one that believes in that. I have a good friend, Kurt, he's founded a company called Pinwheel, and they do income verification. They, they help you connect your bank account. And for exactly what you're describing, they, they really believe that people will get uh, better options on things like loans if they're able to more easily prove their income. Now, I think the common thread there is it's what we believe, which is that sometimes your data can work for you. You need to be able to access it and you need to be able to show that. And that's very much at the core of how we operate. And really kind of what we've discussed here for the whole conversation, what I personally believe is what internet should look like, which is when your data can work for you, it shouldn't, you should be able to control that and you should be able to have it work for you in that moment. And so then now I'm going to ask this question also selfishly is, so I'm interested to know, and I think you can blend these two answers together. For those that don't understand kind of exactly what Footprint has built and the power of it, and I, I've been able to explore the website, and I think it's super interesting and super cool. What does frictionless look like? And you've alluded to it a little bit. Like I can go to the website and I can just click on a button and it goes, but maybe if you want to go in more detail. But the second question is, is how, you know, I'm thinking about from like a financial advisor standpoint, right? We don't necessarily do KYC. We do OFAC and some uh, some other aspects, but we don't necessarily do KYC all the time. Some advisors do, depending on what, what they, what, what area of the market they're in. But how would financial advisors use this? And can clients of advisors use this in a certain way as well? I'm just curious of like what it would look like within a financial advisory firm, whether it's a document vault, because we get, you know, is it, easier to have their data vault there. Uh, but I, I'll let you go from that standpoint. I'm just curious how we use it and what does frictionless look like from the end user standpoint in the world that we live today, not necessarily the world that we desire tomorrow. Yeah. So I think maybe to zoom out and just talk a little more broadly about why is there friction when we sign up for products? To me, one of the big problems is there's a lot of point solutions, I would say, doing the different parts of onboarding. So when you talk about onboarding, Normally, companies or, or independent advisors will be building a flow to collect information. You then normally will use maybe a fraud tool to tell you if there are behaviorally things off on the front end, kind of how people are entering information. Then you'll maybe use an AML tool, like you said, an OFAC tool, a KYC tool on the back end. And then depending on those results, you may want to request more information. Typically, the way that will work is you'll email the person You'll have a portal where they can upload information. To me, that's a big point of friction that once a user finishes that immediate application, if you need more information and you ask for it later, it often does not get given. For Footprint, mm. we have built a dynamic flow, which we give to companies. So that way, companies don't have to spend time building all these edge cases of what information do we collect? What information do we even allow you to input? For example, you on many applications, we'll put in your address. Your address may be a P.O. box. That may be your mailing address. But that mailing address with the P.O. box will always fail traditional KYC. So 
we don't let you proceed if you've put that in there, and nor should companies. But that's a maybe a tough thing to know going in. We then will run the checks, and if we need to collect additional information, we'll dynamically ask for that there. So we'll have you scan a driver's license, we'll have you upload a document, and we'll vault that in real time so that companies can easily view that. To us, there's a real value in, and we're, we're sometimes even shocked what people will kind of people uploading, say, a social security card. I do not know where my SSN card is, but there are people out there who, when they're applying for something, if they're prompted in real time, they will go and scan it. The problem is if you're asking someone to do something much later, they're often not coming back. So for us, a big part of friction and reducing friction is making it one clean experience where what information, all of the information, because for a user, it's also very frustrating where if you're asked to submit say, a document at the end of filling out an application, it may feel like that was part of it. If you get an email a day later, you feel like you didn't pass. You feel like you're being treated as an adversary. You feel like you're not doing something as a higher bar. It feels like you're in this enhanced review. I, 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 I can position myself in that spot, and I agree 100% with that. And I, I think that the idea of the dynamic aspect of it is is truly powerful that I don't know if enough people understand that coming from building a technology platform where we built and we had to ask for some information on individuals, the the logic tree that had to be built to determine what was needed in certain situations and everything of that nature becomes really difficult. And solving that is a major problem that can be solved from from what what y'all are doing on that side. As we we're kind of nearing the end here, I have I have a couple more questions I want to get to. The last one really on the product side, and then we'll get to two kind of or three kind of fun ones is, well, I think that all these are fun. Maybe not, but they're fun to me. Is agreed. You know, <laughs> what 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 excites you most about the product roadmap that you have at footprint over the next 12 to 18 months? What's most exciting on, on the roadmap right now? We're launching something called connections, which I'm very excited about. What you can think about connections as is it quite genuinely connects our customers and our end users on that journey. And that sounds very abstract. So to give an example, uh, we work with, say, tenant screening companies, companies that help kind of landlords apply tenants. When people finish that flow, normally nothing happens. But those are people that probably are interested in things like renter's insurance or affordable ways to pay their rent. What's interesting about Footprint Connections is we're beginning to be able to essentially insert those connections to the other companies that do that. But because you've already filled an application of Footprint, you won't have to fill out another application. So what to me is very exciting about connections is that in a weird way, post-GDPR, it's become tougher. And I think rightfully so. Like You don't want Google just tracking and saying, this person just applied for an apartment. Conversely, for companies that don't offer everything that's part of your journey, but are there in a moment of it, I think it's very nice that consumers can in one click essentially add that second product even from a different company and then not have to worry about giving their data away because they've already entered it once and it's safely there so for as a consumer i'm excited about that and that normally if you go to checkout you can add products from that one company you can add products from a second company and to me i find that a very exciting attraction and at the same time for our customers it's a really exciting way for them to both find and engage with new customers and to be able to offer their existing customers more more value. I love that. That is super interesting. And before I let you go, because I was listening to, I think you're on a podcast early last year, and I was listening to it. And I think 
from what I recall, and you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but I, I believe that you have some experience in stand-up comedy. Is that right? <laughs> that is uh, that is correct. You talked about how it impacted your business mindset. I would like to maybe know a little bit on that, but I really would hope you know maybe you before I get into my final two questions, you know, you can wrap us up. Do you have like a a, a good joke that's hot right now? <laughs> I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure if they're podcast friendly. Uh, they're, they're, they're not terrible. It's more so my 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 sets are. They're not really one liners. I say I structure them. Essentially, I will have like five one minute bits that are part of like what I'd consider like a set. Normally in comedy, it's called like a tight five, and you'll have intervals of that. So if I'm doing a five or ten minute set, I'll normally have two or three sets of those five and. I'll try out the first minute, which is normally the lightest of that genre. And depending on how people respond, kind of go forward or, or change to a different one. Uh, <laughs> but I do love stand-up. I really enjoy writing sets. I really enjoy going and just performing. Like as weird as it sounds, it's a self-love thing for me. And that I liked people. I liked making people laugh before I was trying to sell them some SaaS. Uh, security product <laughs> and, and i think sometimes when you're building a business it's easy to only just do that honestly like one of the most validating things for me is when i do a stand-up set and i talk to comics after and they ask me if i'm doing it full-time and i say like it's part-time because i have another job and they encourage me to quit my real one because it, it just feels like a, a funny thing and we're not going to get like n- none of us get into it but i do love doing stand-up and I feel very lucky to get to do it. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, Eli, I'm gonna I'm gonna be letting you get back to it, but I gotta ask you my two last questions. I ask all my guests, and the first one is is you know, like I said, these conversations are are I'm a I'm a lifelong learner. I have a thirst for curiosity. I love learning new things from smart people, much smarter than myself. And one of the ways I also like to learn is by reading. So I like to ask smart people what books they should suggest reading. And so I'm curious if you have one book that you think that everybody should read if they haven't or reread if they have already read it once. Yeah, I think my answer to this has changed over the years. Now, I think I would have formerly been very quick to recommend my favorite biography that I was reading at the time. Now I'd probably pick a book of fiction. Uh, recently, I read a book, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. It was phenomenal. I think novels and books are like mirrors. And a really good way to, I think, learn about yourself is to read a novel that makes you think creatively and then reread it a year or two later and see if you feel differently about it. You normally won't feel different reading a biography, but I'm always shocked how different it is when you reread a novel over the years. And my favorite book, The Shadow of the Wind, I, I try to read every year, and I've done that for seven or eight years by now. And, and each time it is a different experience. I love that. Yeah, being able to immerse yourself into a plot, into a story, into character creates an ability to have your mind open up a little bit more, even more so than maybe a business book from that standpoint. So I think that that's a, a super great answer. Uh, and, and the last question I always ask people is, you know, we talked about a lot here. And I always like to give our listeners some actionable insights or actionable things they can go and implement you know, today or tomorrow to better themselves or their firm or whatever it may be. What would be one piece of actionable advice, whether it's something we talked about from something we talked about today or, or not, that you would give to close out this podcast for the listeners? Yeah, I'd end with two very related notes from, from my, my late grandfather, which is one, I think people tend to underestimate how different the 
risks or different things they're doing are to the status quo. I think that if people are very resistant to change and if you're doing something different, it's probably more different than you think. And I think part two of that is things that we may perceive as risky, I think often are less risky than we may even think. I think people often see a very high bar to doing things, whether it's you know working on a new product, starting a new job. Oftentimes, though, the downside scenarios are, are not as low as we think. And it's very easy maybe to get caught up in the headline of what if this fails. But I think when you play out the game of, well, what if it fails? And what would that look like? I think those scenarios often look better maybe than people imagine. So I guess that's my ode to risk-taking. But I think it's also my ode to saying that risk-taking doesn't need to be the craziest thing in the world. It can just be doing something a little bit differently. I love that. That's awesome. Eli, it's been a true pleasure, man. Super interesting. I am really intrigued with what y'all are doing and can't wait to continue to follow the journey. I think you're tackling an awesome problem that needs to be solved and tackled and you're doing it the right way. Uh, And I'm sure that there's going to be other people that are going to want to continue to follow that journey, maybe getting engaged with it, maybe uh, work with you. So what's the best way for people to follow you and and follow the journey? I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, To follow along, our website's onefootprint.com. We have an email list. I'm at Twitter. Uh, it's just my name, Eli Walks, E-L-I-W-A-C-H-S. And you can see me on there for mostly tweets about identity and occasional plugs for my stand-up performances in New York. There we go. I love it. Eli Walks, keep doing the good work you're doing, my friend. And uh, I appreciate you being uh, a part of this podcast and spend your time here with us. So be good, stay good. And thank you again, my friend. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 